0: Please pray with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. (laughs) When I finalized my field education placement at a church this year, at this church, I knew that preaching would be part of my responsibilities, something that I anticipated with equal servings of excitement and trepidation. Now, for those of you who don't know, I was raised and still primarily identify as Roman Catholic, a tradition in which women are still barred from formal ministry. And so it feels pretty radical for me to be standing up here in front of you in a pulpit delivering what I know as a homily. It feels kind of subversive, even. This whole thing feels like a big trust fall, and I'm grateful that you are all here to catch me. Now, I attended Catholic school from kindergarten all the way through college, and so religion, liturgy, and the Bible are a familiar language. Scripture stories were part of my daily education, as was prayer at the beginning and the end of the school day. Just a few months ago, I figured I had a pretty solid handle on the gospel stories. After all, I had heard them so regularly growing up. But divinity school has a way of flipping what you think you know completely upside down, when my preaching date was selected, I checked the assigned scripture passage, John chapter 3, verses 1-21, to 21, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. I sat down to read the text for the first time since, I don't know, probably middle school, and was immediately, well, a little freaked out. <laughs> this passage has John 3.16 at its heart, the famous verse that reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son— so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. This is kind of the Bible verse, isn't it? The one that's tattooed on arms around the world and held aloft on posters at football games. The one that many theologians and religious leaders regard as the most synced and essential summary of Christian life and belief that the Bible has to offer us. In fact, when I mentioned this text and my forthcoming sermon, to my non-religion Jewish friend at school, expecting the need to explain the big dealness of this verse, he just looked at me and said, oh, even I know that one. <laughs> <laughs> the message here clearly means a lot to people, and so commenting on it is pretty intimidating for a first sermon. There's also just a lot going on in this passage. Just to refresh our ears of the story, we hear of Nicodemus, a Jewish spiritual leader in Jerusalem who comes to Jesus under the cover of night, curious of the rumors he has heard about this guy from this nowhere town of Nazareth who's just going around turning water into wine at weddings and, as we heard last week, flipping tables at the temple in anger. Nicodemus asks Jesus how these signs and acts can be real and what they mean. And Jesus doesn't hold back. He drops some theological truth bombs, shall we call them, declaring that we must be born from above if we hope to enter the kingdom, that God sent him to this world to save the world, and that all who believe in him will have eternal life. And as I read this text, I really struggled to connect with it. It directly engages with some of the things that I honestly find the most difficult in our Christian faith— I can, of course, only speak for myself, but when I talk to people about Christianity, I normally talk about things like the Beatitudes, the Golden Rule, Jesus' example of walking with those on the margins, his own marginalized identity, and his message of radical love, community, and hospitality. But that's not what this text is necessarily about. It's about belief, salvation, eternal life so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. So what do I do with a text that centers belief, that marks belief as the only way to enter the kingdom, to really be a Christian? Because, well, what if I'm not sure what I believe? Now, maybe this feels shocking. What do you mean you don't know what you believe? You're in divinity school. You may be wondering just how far Kent and Amy's hiring standards have fallen recently. <laughs> it feels radical to say, right? Even a bit heretical. We often think of traditional Christianity as being shaped around orthodoxy or right belief. To be Christian is to believe in the tenets of Christianity, right? But I think that sometimes we take this belief thing for granted a bit. I had a professor, an Episcopal priest who told us stories about his congregation and how they are deeply committed to the parish community and love coming to church and living out Jesus' message of love and sacrifice and justice, but would come to his office in moments of pastoral need and say things like, come on, Matt. I mean, virgin birth, really? (laughs) I think it's okay and normal to be a little unsure of some of the ins and outs of this rich, complex Christian faith. As I mentioned earlier, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, where our religion was as much cultural as it was, well, religious. We were Catholic in the same way we were Irish, they were two sides of the same coin. I received First Communion or prayed before dinner in the same way that I took Irish dancing lessons or ate my grandma's corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day. It was simply what we did and who we were there wasn't a lot of emphasis on really understanding or interrogating belief in the faith of my childhood. So here I am, a young adult of 25, in my first year of divinity school, on the path to some sort of ministry, and if I'm being honest, I don't always know what I believe. And reading this text scared me a little bit because it's so explicit in how important belief is. Those who do not believe are condemned already, Jesus says, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It seems pretty clear. I was brainstorming this sermon, spending my Friday night immersed in biblical interpretation like all the cool 20-somethings are doing these days, and this thing that was supposed to be a nice and fun learning experience suddenly became this faith emergency that ended with my staring at a wall convinced I'm going to be cut out from eternal life because I don't know what I believe. My Friday night had devolved into the realm of existential crisis, which I'm learning is the dark side of biblical interpretation that they don't teach you in divinity school. Now, if the options are as simple as Jesus says, believe and be saved, don't believe and be condemned, then where does this leave me or you or a lot of people who don't always know what we believe? Are we shut out from the kingdom, from eternal life? The answer, in short, is no. I think Jesus is actually telling us something quite different here. In this scripture passage, Jesus chastises Nicodemus a bit, saying, if I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? On my first, oh, 50 or so readings of this passage, I understood this verse to mean that the earthly isn't important, that our physical realities simply get in the way of our ability to live out our faith and belief, that we must shed the physical, the daily workings of our bodies and our lives to achieve some higher understanding and connection, some higher consciousness. If our bodies are here, then the good stuff is up there, earthly, heavenly bodies, feelings, experiences, belief. But on reading number 51 or 52, something clicked, like a new lens kind of shifting in front of my vision. Jesus isn't demeaning earthly things or saying they don't matter. In fact, it's the opposite. He says, if I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? I think that Jesus is saying our physical life here on earth is actually essential to that heavenly or spiritual or other experience. We have to believe, yes, but we must first believe in earthly things and believe that they are a crucial and necessary way to access the sacred. Because though we have souls and minds and spirits, we also have physical bodies and, for better or worse, we experience life and faith and belief through those bodies, through our literal, physical interactions with each other, with the earth, and with, yes, God? What if this passage isn't actually focused on the promise of heaven or eternal life, but instead focused on the promise of our own world? I'll repeat that. What if this passage isn't actually focused on the promise of heaven or eternal life, but instead focused on the promise of our own world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. I think that John 3.16, and indeed the entire story of Nicodemus, is about the radicalness of God entering the world, a world full of flesh and bone, water and dirt, life and death, to be nearer to us as humans. If we do not first see how God is active in our lives, in our bodies, and in the physical world through which Jesus walked— then how can we even begin to comprehend heavenly things, as Jesus calls them? Sure, I don't always know what I believe, but I believe in what I have experienced, and I know God through these experiences. In this passage, Jesus speaks to the need of being born from above, born anew, born again. Well, when I think about what that means, I think of the experiences—not singular, but plural— through which I have been born anew, born in a new way. I'll give you an example. In 2012, I was lucky enough to spend a month traveling alone throughout the gorgeous country of New Zealand. The most remote part of my trip was a stop on Stewart Island, a place quite literally at the bottom of the world. There's not much between that island and Antarctica. I had a free day in the tiny village on the island, and there wasn't much to do besides wander, and so, well, I wandered. And I noticed a tiny, red-roofed church on a hill overlooking the village and the harbor below. Do you ever have those experiences where your feet kind of take you somewhere before your brain actually decides to go? I started hiking up the steep road to the church. Now, my time in New Zealand came after my college semester abroad, And at a time in my life when I was in my spiritual but not religious phase, I hadn't been inside a church in months for the first time in my life. I hadn't really thought about religion for even longer. And I hadn't realized how much I had really needed it. I opened the door of the church to find an empty, single, simple room awash with beautiful morning light. I circled the sanctuary, reading the plaques, flipping through the hymnals. And then I just settled in the back pew and kind of just stared forward, lost in thought. An hour passed as I let it all wash over me. The stillness in the church, the light, the memory of the people who had been there before me, the humbling, centering knowledge that I was in a tiny church on a tiny island at the bottom of the world, It felt like the spirit was reaching out and grabbing me, just flooding through me. I was in that pew for a long time, and yet no one else entered the church. Something kept me there, some internal ache that was both deepening and being soothed by being in that church. Eventually, I I grabbed my pack and I walked into the sun outside, and I always pinpoint that experience in a way I can't quite articulate, as the start of the five-year journey that ended with me here at Divinity School. I needed the physical walls of that church, built by human hands, to have that experience of the sacred. The spiritual came to me through the physical. I think we all have these God-grabbing moments, these moments of being born anew, where God meets us exactly where we are. Are we noticing those moments when they come to us? When I think about these deep experiences of faith and belief, where the physical acts as a vessel for the spiritual, I don't always think of the peaceful or joyful ones. Life doesn't work that way, and neither does God. I think of election night, 2016, in Asheville, North Carolina, where I had spent the last five months working seven hours a day, 12 hours, seven days a week, 12 hours a day (laughs) as a field organizer. We were at a party held by local political leaders, watching the results roll in in what was presumed to be a joyous, triumphant evening. But state after state was being called for the other side. And when they called North Carolina, the state that I had spent so many hours trying to win for my candidate, I just, I just knew that we had lost the whole thing. And people were verbally doing the electoral college math, assuring me that we still had a path to victory if we won this state and that state, but I just somehow, deep down, knew. In a fit of claustrophobia, I ran outside the restaurant, my vision spinning as my back found the brick wall, and I slowly sunk to the ground in belly-heaving sobs. My legs turned suddenly to jello under me. It was happening, the thing that we hadn't imagined, the nightmare we hadn't even really considered. I hadn't really known the word despair until that moment. And despair feels pretty lonely. But suddenly there were people in my peripheral. There were arms around me, hands reaching out to me, tears suddenly mingling with mine. It was my friends, my fellow organizers, the very people with whom I had spent all those countless hours. They had followed me. They had found me. And as the world crashed down around us, we found stillness as we found each other. Now I can name that that was sacred. It was holy. And that holiness came to me through the arms and tears of people, of my friends. Clearly these experiences have shaped me, have oriented me toward God. It's not necessarily that I need these experiences to believe in God, but rather that I only understand and have a language for my faith and belief because of these experiences. I only know what it means to believe in a God that seeks to know me, that draws me to them because of that church in New Zealand. I only know what it means to believe in a God who finds me and reaches out to me in times of sorrow because I believe that those arms of my friends that encircled me as I sobbed against that brick wall on election night were an open, outstretched palm of the sacred, a mingling of heaven and earth. These experiences give me a language for my belief. They help me understand. They help me to know. Jesus says to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wind and spirit are actually the same word in the original Greek of the Gospel of John. So when Jesus says that the wind blows where it chooses, and we can't chase it or predict it, he's doing a clever play on words here. He references the wind, a physical phenomenon that all humans know intimately. But he wants us to think of the spirit, something that we may find even more mysterious than the wind. He's saying that our encounters with God come to us in ways and at times we can never anticipate, and yet they are always there. I spent my first year after college serving with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps Northwest, a full-time faith-based service program where I was introduced to the rich world of Ignatian spirituality. Ignatian is a word used to describe the unique spirituality of the Jesuits, or the Society of Jesus, an order of Catholic priests founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola. Ignatius was a soldier, soldier who lived in Spain in the 1500s, and when he was just 20 years old, a cannonball seriously wounded his leg in battle, and he had to spend months in bed recovering. Now, though Ignatius preferred to read romantic tales of knights and damsels in distress in castles, The hospital was run by a bunch of nuns and so what he got instead was a big stack of books on the lives of the saints. And Ignatius became a bit obsessed with these saints' biographies. While reading about the amazing acts of these holy people throughout history, Ignatius thought, with all the brazen confidence of a young man, hey, I can do that too. And he dedicated the rest of his life to imitating those saints, eventually founding the Jesuit order and developing a rich set of spiritual practices anchored by the notion of finding God in all things. The truth that God is literally everywhere and everything and everyone all the time. As the Jesuit priest and scientist, Pierre Tehard de Chardin, excuse my French pronunciation, <laughs> wrote, God is not remote from us. God is at the point of my pen, my shovel, my paintbrush, my needle— and my heart and my thoughts. Teilhard de Chardin was a paleontologist. He studied fossils, and he grew to love and know God through his love for the natural world and the marvels he found in his study of evolution. God met him where he was, through the rocks and fossils in his hands, through the dirt under his shovel. God meets us in the same way. What I love so much about finding God in all things is that if God is in all things, then that means that God can be in anything and in anyone. The source of all things that we call God comes to us through our experiences, meets us where we are, accompanies us through our everyday lives, and finds us through other people. I know that. I believe it. God met me in that church in New Zealand, but God also meets me through the stranger who kind-heartedly chases me out of the coffee shop to return the headphones I'd absentmindedly left by the register. <laughs> I think that this is one of the core messages of Jesus in this passage. This big message of belief and being born from above and salvation that I personally find really intimidating comes down to something that I think is beautifully simple— Faith in God can and must start here, in our bodies, in our world, and in our communities. The God of the New Testament isn't a God that stays remote up in heaven, but that entered our human world through a human woman. If we remember and honor that fact every day, what might that mean for how we interact with our world and with each other? For me, this means paying attention to the ways I feel faith in my body and through my senses. Jesus says to Nicodemus, We speak of what we have known and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. How might we actively seek to receive that testimony? Jesus is calling us to notice, to pay attention, to note and take joy and wonder and awe in the ways in which our daily lives are sacred and holy? What if every new morning is a sort of baptism? What if every meal with loved ones is communion? In this story, Jesus is calling to us through the millennia to understand and believe in the power of those earthly things, as he calls them. By understanding and knowing the earthly, maybe that brings us closer to the heavenly. Because I think that salvation might be a a process, an an unfolding, a, a long story that begins here on earth. It comes to us like the wind, like the spirit that blows where it chooses, and we hear the sound but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Maybe to believe is to know that these things are true, that these experiences matter, that we access the heavenly through the earthly realities of our senses. Through the soft animals of our bodies, as the poet Mary Oliver once wrote. By noticing, by noting, and by believing in that, we can receive Jesus' testimony. Amen.